This is John Calvin's The Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 2, Chapter 3, Everything Proceeding from the Corrupt Nature of Man Damnable, Sections 1 through 4. Section 1. The nature of man in both parts of his soul, namely intellect and will, cannot be better ascertained than by attending to the epithets applied to him in Scripture. If he is fully depicted, and it may easily be proved that he is, by the words of our Savior, that which is born of flesh is flesh, in John 3, 6, he must be a very miserable creature. For as an apostle declares, to be carnally minded is death, Romans 8, 8. It is enmity against God, and it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Is it true that the flesh is so perverse that it is perpetually striving with all its might against God, that it cannot accord with the righteousness of the divine law, that in short it can beget nothing but the materials of death, grant that there is nothing in human nature but flesh, and then extract something good out of it if you can. But it will be said that the word flesh applies only to the sensual and not to the higher part of the soul. This, however, is completely refuted by the words both of Christ and his apostle. The statement of our Lord is that a man must be born again because he is flesh. He requires not to be born again with reference to the body. But a mind is not born again merely by having some portion of it reformed. It must be totally renewed. This is confirmed by the antithesis used in both passages. In the contrast between the spirit and the flesh, there is nothing left of an intermediate nature. In this way, everything in man which is not spiritual falls under the denomination of carnal. But we have nothing of the spirit except through regeneration. Everything, therefore, which we have from nature is flesh. Any possible doubt which might exist on the subject is removed by the words of Paul in Ephesians 4.23, where, after a description of the old man, who, he says, is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, he bids us be renewed in the spirit of our mind. You see that he places unlawful and depraved desires, not in the sensual part merely, but in the mind itself, and therefore requires that it should be renewed. Indeed. He had a little before drawn a picture of human nature, which shows that there is no part in which it is not perverted and corrupted. For when he says that the Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, Ephesians 4, 17 and 18, there can be no doubt that his words apply to all whom the Lord has not yet formed anew both to wisdom and righteousness. This is rendered more clear by the comparison which immediately follows, and by which he reminds believers that they have not so learned Christ, these words implying that the grace of Christ is the only remedy for the blindness and its evil consequences. Thus, too, had Isaiah prophesied of the kingdom of Christ when the Lord promised to the church that though darkness should cover the earth and gross darkness the people, yet that he should arise upon it and his glory should be seen upon it. Isaiah 40 verse 2.
when it is thus declared that divine light is to arise on the church alone, all without the church is left in blindness and darkness. It will not enumerate all that occurs throughout Scripture, and particularly in the Psalms and prophetical writings, as to the vanity of man. There is much in what David says, Surely men of low degree are vanity, and men of high degree are a lie, to be laid in the balance. They are altogether lighter than vanity. Psalm 62, verse 10. The human mind receives a humbling blow when all the thoughts which proceed from it are derided as foolish, frivolous, perverse, and insane. Section 2. In no degree more lenient is the condemnation of the heart when it is described as deceitful above all things and desperately wicked in Jeremiah 17, verse 9. But as I study brevity, I will be satisfied with a single passage, one, however, in which, as in a bright mirror, we may behold a complete image of our nature. The Apostle, when he would humble man's pride, uses these words, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulchre. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Romans 3, verses 10 through 18. Thus he thunders not against certain individuals, but against the whole posterity of Adam, not against the depraved manners of any single age, but the perpetual corruption of nature, his object in the passage is not merely to upbraid men in order that they may repent, but to teach that all are overwhelmed with inevitable calamity and can be delivered from it only by the mercy of God. As this could not be proved without previously proving the overthrow and destruction of nature, he produced those passages to show that its ruin is complete. Let it be a fixed point, then that men are such as is here described, not by vicious custom, but by depravity of nature. The reasoning of the apostle that there is no salvation for man, save in the mercy of God, because in himself he is desperate and undone, could not otherwise stand. I will not here labor to prove that the passages apply with the view of removing the doubts of any who might think them quoted out of place, I will take them as if they had been used by Paul for the first time and not taken from the prophets. First, then, he strips man of righteousness, that is, integrity and purity. And secondly, he strips him of sound intelligence. He argues that defect of intelligence is proved by apostasy from God. To seek him is the beginning of wisdom, and therefore such defect must exist in all who have revolted from him. He subjoins that all have gone astray and become, as it were, mere corruption, that there is none that does good. He then enumerates the crimes by which those who have once given loose to their wickedness 
pollute every member of their bodies. Lastly, he declares that they have no fear of God, according to whose rule all our steps should be directed. If these are the hereditary properties of the human race, it is vain to look for anything good in our nature. I confess indeed. I confess indeed that all these iniquities do not break out in every individual. Still, it cannot be denied that the hydra lurks in every breast. For as a body, while it contains and fosters the cause and matter of disease, cannot be called healthy, although pain is not actually felt. So a soul, while teeming with such seeds of vice, cannot be called sound. This similitude, however, does not apply throughout. In a body, however morbid, the functions of life are performed. But the soul, when plunged into that deadly abyss, not only labors under vice, but is altogether devoid of good. Section 3. Here again we are met with a question, very much the same as that which was previously solved. In every age there have been some who, under the guidance of nature, were all their lives devoted to virtue. It is of no consequence that many blots may be detected in their conduct. By the mere study of virtue, they evince that there was somewhat of a purity in their nature. The value which virtues of this kind have in the sight of God will be considered more fully when we treat of the merits of works. Meanwhile, however, it will be proper to consider it in this place also. In so far as necessary for the exposition of the subject in hand, such examples, then, seem to warn us against supposing that the nature of man is utterly vicious, since under its guidance some have not only excelled in illustrious deeds, but conducted themselves most honorably through the whole course of their lives. But we ought to consider that, notwithstanding of the corruption of our nature, there is some room for divine grace, such grace as, without purifying it, may lay it under internal restraint. For did the Lord let every mind loose to wanton in its lusts? Doubtless there is not a man who could not show that his nature is capable of all the crimes with which Paul charges it. What? Can you exempt yourself from the number of those whose feet are swift to shed blood, whose hands are foul with rapine and murder, whose throats are like open sepulchres, whose tongues are deceitful, whose lips are venomous, whose actions are useless, unjust, rotten, deadly, whose soul is without God, whose inward parts are full of wickedness, whose eyes are on the watch for deception, whose minds are prepared for insult, whose every part, in short, is framed for endless deeds of wickedness. If every soul is capable of such abominations, and the apostle declares this boldly, it is surely easy to see what the result would be. If the Lord were to permit human passion to follow its bent, no ravenous beast would rush so furiously, no stream, however rapid and violent, so impetuously burst its banks. In the elect, God cures these diseases in the mode which will shortly be explained. In others, he only lays them under such restraint as may prevent them from breaking forth to a degree incompatible with the preservation of the established order of things. Hence, how much soever men may disguise their impurity, some are restrained only by shame, 
others by a fear of the laws. From breaking out into many kinds of wickedness, some aspire to an honest life, as deeming it most conducive to their interest, while others are raised above the vulgar lot, that by the dignity of their station they may keep inferiors to their duty. Thus God, by his providence, curbs the perverseness of nature, preventing it from breaking forth into action, yet without rendering it inwardly pure. Section 4. The objection, however, is not yet solved, for we must either put Catiline on the same footing with Camillus, or hold Camillus to be an example that nature, when carefully cultivated, is not wholly void of goodness. I admit that the specious qualities which Camillus possessed were divine gifts, and appear entitled to commendation when viewed in themselves. But in what way will they be proofs of a virtuous nature? Must we not go back to the mind, and from it begin to reason thus? If a natural man possesses such integrity of manners, nature is not without the faculty of studying virtue. But what if his mind was depraved and perverted and followed anything rather than rectitude? Such it undoubtedly was, if you grant that he was only a natural man. How then will you laud the power of human nature for good, if even where there is the highest semblance of integrity, a corrupt bias is always detected. Therefore, as you would not commend a man for virtue whose vices impose upon you by a show of virtue, so you will not attribute a power of choosing rectitude to the human will while rooted in depravity. Still, the surest and easiest answer to the objection is that those are not common endowments of nature but special gifts of God, which he distributes in diverse forms and in a definite measure to men otherwise profane. For which reason we hesitate not in common language to say that one is of a good, another of a vicious nature, though we cease not to hold that both are placed under the universal condition of human depravity. All we mean is that God has conferred on the one a special grace which he has not seen it meet to confer on the other. When he was pleased to set Saul over the kingdom, he made him, as it were, a new man. This is the thing meant by Plato when, alluding to a passage in the Iliad, he says that the children of kings are distinguished at their birth by some special qualities. God in kindness to the human race, often giving a spirit of heroism to those whom he destines for empire. In this way, the great leaders celebrated in history were formed. The same judgment must be given in the case of private individuals, but as those endued with the greatest talents were always impelled by the greatest ambitions, a stain which defiles all virtues and makes them lose all favor in the sight of God. So we cannot set any value on anything that seems praiseworthy in ungodly men. We may add that the principal part of rectitude is wanting. When there is no zeal for the glory of God, and there is no zeal in those whom he has not regenerated by his Spirit. Nor is it without good cause said in Isaiah that on Christ should rest the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, Isaiah 11, verse 2, 
For by this we are taught that all who are strangers to Christ are destitute of that fear of God, which is the beginning of wisdom. Psalm 111, verse 10. The virtues which deceive us by an empty show may have their praise in civil society and the common intercourse of life, but before the judgment seat of God, they will be of no value to establish a claim of righteousness.